reunited with his son Dave. Um, and it was kind of interesting down there. Um, the, the whole process took several hours. Uh, and at one point, one of the family was uh, talking to the nurse. And the concern was his father was coming down from Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh, New Hampshire. And it was looking like he wasn't going to be able to make it in time. The, uh, Bob was going fast. Uh, one of the family thanked the nurse, said, well, thanks for holding, holding Bob together till, till his father got here. And the nurse said, I didn't do anything. Uh, there was, I, nothing I was doing could hold him anymore. Uh, his heart rate had dropped really bad. God held him there so that his father could be there. Uh, and it was good to, good to see that acknowledgement. Uh, in any case, uh, our brother Bob, is, he's gone on ahead of us, so we'll, I'm looking forward to meeting him. Uh, anytime's good for me at this point. Uh, but if you want to uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy this morning, uh, uh, we're going to be brief here today. I want to look at well, let me let me preface this a little bit. We're gonna be we're gonna be looking in uh, the book of First Timothy. We're gonna look at the whole book of First Timothy, and here we are. Uh, we're here in Bethel Bible Church, Surrey, New Hampshire, and we're all sitting here, and we're professing to be Christians, right? My, boy, that was pretty weak. I hope everybody here is professing to be Christians. All right, and as such. We're claiming that we want to live more godly lives, right? If not, then I really seriously have to question why you are here, because there's all kinds of places I'd rather be on a perfectly good fishing day than right here. Uh, So if we're all looking for good, living more godly lives... Have any of us ever really taken a look at what the Bible has to say about godliness? I mean, we talk about it. We throw the word around. Yeah, I want to be more godly. It would be good to live a godly life. Have you ever looked to see what it means to be godly? Uh, What all that may entail? I really haven't either until I was putting this together. So I'm in the same boat with you guys. Uh, so that's, if that's what we're here to do, we're sitting here on a perfectly good bow hunting day. We ought to have a purpose. Be, our purpose, we claim, is to be godly. It seems like a good start to look at what godliness entails. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't go through the whole Bible looking to see what it said about regarding godliness, because I wanted to get out of here early. It is, after all, a beautiful day. Uh, But I did take a lazy man's look. Since I'm already teaching 1 Timothy in Sunday school, I thought I might just, just look at what 1 Timothy has to say about godliness. And by the end of today, I think you're going to agree that that's about enough to last us through the week you'll be shocked to see how many times godliness is mentioned in 1 Timothy. So with that for an introduction, hopefully you found 1 Timothy. We're going to start at the beginning of 1 Timothy. We're going to work our way through. Uh, just looking at godliness, as described by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy. But I'd like to start with a word of prayer. 
Lord, we do thank you that your love never does fail. You're an unfailing God in all aspects. You're a promise-keeping God. You're a trustworthy God. And you're the only true God, our Savior. We ask that you'll help us through this. We call it a worship service. We ask that you'll help us, guide us through this worship so that we can give you worship that you truly deserve. For you alone are worthy. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. So let's look at what Paul has to say to Timothy in 1 Timothy about godliness. So as you're looking around through, uh, the first real reference to godliness in 1 Timothy comes in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2. Let's read uh, verse 1 with it, because it, it gives us the whole sentence. He says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So if you've been with us in Sunday school, you may recall some of what we said here. But maybe I'll add a little bit of fresh insight here this morning. Not, not a whole lot. If you've, if you've been in Sunday school, the first couple you're going to see, we've already talked about already. But... 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 is all about praying for a variety of folks. You saw that, right? Uh, Paul's talking about we should pray for kings. We should pray for all that are in authority. All kinds of people we should be praying for. And we talked about that in Sunday school. But why are we commanded to pray for these people? Why pray for kings? Why pray for these people who are in authority? That's the focus that we got here this morning, this time that we're looking at it. The focus is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's why I should pray. Not necessarily for them. Yes, they get a benefit from me praying for them too. We ought to be praying for our political leaders, hadn't we? But it's not so much for, it's so that I can live in a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. It's for my benefit to pray for them. Isn't that interesting? That would certainly be different than the arguments that have been going on in Ephesus. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. They've got all kinds of problems with false teachings, myths that have been being spread. So Paul offers prayer for leadership as an antidote for the confusion in Timothy's day. I wonder if prayer would work for the confusion in our world today. So it seems to be a confused world. Uh, uh, maybe it's just me confused. Does this world seem to be a, in a confused, dazed, doesn't know really where it's headed state? Okay. So it's not just me. It's all of you folks too. Uh, well, I would sure like to see some more quiet, some more peace, some more godliness and more honesty in this world, wouldn't you? Well, Paul says that this is the ticket 
is to pray for kings and all those who are in authority so that we can have quiet, peace, godliness, and all honesty. If we want it, that's the path to it, Paul says. Good place to start, isn't it? They don't listen, but God's listening. Notice in this, uh, it's an interesting point you bring up, we're not told that they will listen. (laughs) We're not told, but we are promised that we're going to have quietness, peace, godliness, and honesty. And I think it's worth a try. I think it's worth a try. Now, that sort of lifestyle is going to result from a healthy prayer life. And that fits the description of the goal of Paul's teaching back all the way up to the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul's telling Timothy how he ought to live. And he says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That sounds kind of quiet, sounds kind of peaceful, sounds kind of godly and kind of honest. Paul's goal for Timothy ought to be the goal for ourselves as well, hadn't it? And praying for our leadership is one of the paths toward that. So that's the first reference to godliness that comes along in 1 Timothy. The second one is right next door to it. We talked about it in Sunday school last week. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. It says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, if you want the teaching on that verse, you can look at the, uh, listen to the recording that we made last week. I'm not going to teach it again. Uh, it talks about how women ought to dress and act in the church. And it says, in a way which becometh women professing godliness. That's all I want to talk about here today. Like I say, if you want the rest of it, go ahead and read the, listen to the recording. Uh, but worship, not displaying oneself, is what God desires. If you back up to the verses before, you realize that it's the same thing for men, too. God wants worship. He doesn't want displaying of yourself. See, the word that's translated becometh is a form of the Greek word prepo, from which we get appropriate. That which is fitting becometh. See, good works are appropriate for a Christian woman. They're also appropriate for a Christian man. Paul uses this word three other times. We looked at them when we went through uh, Sunday school. I'm not going to do it again. Three other times he uses them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, and Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. If you'll look at those, each time you'll see that they refer to proper attitudes, proper responses, and proper behaviors. See, proper worship of God, we're here, we call this our Sunday morning worship service, right? Proper worship of God ought to call us all to a higher standard. In this particular verse that we're looking at, Paul's calling women who are competent and well-versed in proper Christian worship. 
says that these are women who profess godliness. Now, the word godliness is unique. We're, while we're talking about it, I ought to throw it out there to you. It's theosebia. Theosebia in the Greek. It's only found here as theosebia in all of the New Testament. And it's referring to piety and a worshipful attitude. Paul's talking about women who are actively pursuing God in a way that's worthy of his nature. Now, the next reference that com godliness comes along in the book of 1 Timothy comes in chapter 3. So, uh, I'll tell you, anybody who is following along in Sunday school, now I'm really going to start uh, stealing my own thunder for pretty much the rest of this. The rest, the beginning part, anybody in Sunday school's already heard. Anybody in Sunday school's going to hear a lot of the rest of this again, but I think we're going to take a little different tack on this. Uh, so, chapter 3 and verse 16, it goes like this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, that's interesting. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Great is the mystery of godliness, he says. Interesting, interesting phrase. Now, admittedly, uh, that isn't referring so much to what you and I can do to be more godly, is it? I mean, it doesn't give us any commands on what we could do to be more godly. Uh, the first one we looked at, we talked about, we can pray for our leadership. That's a way, path toward godliness. This one, not so much. Rather, this time, it's referring to godliness as an attribute that describes God. In this particular case... It's referring to the whole construct of God's plan of salvation as revealed in His Word, you see. Godliness. The mystery of godliness. And here's what it is. God is manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and believed on in the world, received up into glory. That sounds like the salvation message, doesn't it? The mystery of godliness is somehow tied to the plan of salvation. See, this is a hymn, kind of a creed, if you will, that Paul's giving to Timothy. Something that can remember. Here, if you want, there's several times when Paul lists these sort of things in his writings. You want a basic plan of salvation. Here is it. God manifest in the flesh. He came in the flesh. We all know who that was, right? That was our Lord Jesus Christ. God came in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit. He was seen of the angels and preached unto Gentiles. Believed on in the world and received up into glory. The truth of the gospel has been proclaimed in all the nations, and where it has been preached, it has been believed by at least some folks, and that results in salvation. That's where you and I can participate in that mystery of the godliness, you see. 
I said that it really does, this one doesn't really have a whole lot to do with how we can attain godliness, but this is how we can participate in that godliness by proclaiming that gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that it can be believed on. That's the mystery of godliness, Paul says. And that's a pretty worthy endeavor, wouldn't you say? Especially as we all agree that time's getting a little bit short here. I was talking with Charlie about that this morning. Uh, we believe time is getting short. Or Charlie and I do, anyway. We were talking about it. Uh, I don't think we got a whole lot more time left on this planet. In that time that we do have, we ought to be spending towards spreading the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles around us. Now, next mention of godliness in 1 Timothy is one that I particularly like. This is my favorite one. So we're going to spend a little more time on this one than we've spent on the others. It comes in uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Paul gives some advice to Timothy. He says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. Exercise yourself unto godliness. For godliness is profitable unto all things. There aren't that many investments that can make that claim, are there? There's all kinds of things you can invest in, in this world. But there aren't many things that are profitable in all things. I can't think of any. But Paul says here that exercising in godliness is profitable unto all things. Not just in this life here, but in the life to come as well. That's a pretty sound investment, wouldn't you say? It benefits this life as well as eternity. That's a good promise. But did you notice that it takes exercise? It takes discipline. This doesn't come naturally. Sitting here in a church pew, listening to me ramble on, isn't going to make you godly. I hope that's not a surprise to any of you. You have to exercise. Another interesting fact, just like physical exercise, I can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. You can say that you want to get pumped up, and I can agree with you, and I'll say, yeah, all right, let's, let's do it. But if I'm the only one jogging, and I'm the only one lifting weights, then you aren't going to get ripped. Are you? We can talk about it all day long. But until you're disciplined and actually working on it, you're not going to get ripped. I will. It's the same thing in church, by the way. If you're expecting my study and my discipline to make you more godly, you're in for a rude awakening. And that's just the truth. I personally think that that's why we see so little 
spiritual growth and so little real godliness in the church in America because there's very little discipline and very little personal effort going into it. And there could be all kinds of reasons for it. I'm not going to get into the speculating on the reasons here today. I'll let you think on that on your own. But popular opinion in the church today is that just going to church once or twice a week is going to do it for them. That they're, they're fulfilling, they're going to just become more godly as they do that. And that's not true. And so most of the people who are sitting in church pews today are the 90-pound weaklings instead of real heroes of the faith. Or 400-pound couch potatoes, as the case may be. I mean, it works either way. Uh, we're not, we don't see real heroes of the faith because we don't see a lot of discipline. We don't see a lot of exercise in what it takes to be godly. Do you agree? I think we could tighten things up a little bit. Then uh, moving along, uh, chapter 5 and verse 4. It talks about, But if any widow have children or nephews... Let them first learn uh, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents for that is good and acceptable before God that word piety that's our thought godliness here translated slightly different uh, the king james says that this widow with family ought to show piety at home before seeking charity from the church and that, well, as I say, that word piety is the same word that we're using here for godliness. Some Bibles even translate it godliness, and if you have one, that's probably more accurate. Uh, but regardless of what the terms you decide to use, whether you call it piety or whether you call it godliness, the meaning is still the same, you see. Before the widow can expect financial support from the church, she needs to first demonstrate a godly lifestyle. And that, by the way, is consistent with all the Bible's overall teachings for charitable support. Nowhere does the Bible suggest that God's church ought to just distribute to the needs of everyone who knocks on the door. The Bible never says that. But rather, the recipient needs to de demonstrate that they're living in the right way, that they're living a godly lifestyle. If they're living a godly lifestyle and they've fallen on hard times, then it is the responsibility of the church to help them out. Classic example of that is the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? Ruth was a widow who, although she was a Moabite, she wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Moabite. Enemies of Israel, actually, at the time. And she was still seeking to honor the God of her Jewish mother-in-law, who did everything she could to discourage her at first. Naomi, you remember? Naomi tried to discourage Ruth, said, no, go on home to Moab. Don't bother following me. I'm going back to Israel. You stay in Moab. Get married again. Naomi did everything she could to discourage Ruth. But Ruth said, no. I'm going to honor your God. I'm going to follow you. I'm going back with you. And God honored her faithfulness by sending her to Boaz, who provided for her needs as a true follower of God should. See, Ruth lived a godly life and was rewarded for it. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here with uh, 
widows, if they're showing an exemplary godly life, then the church ought to be taking care of them. And the next uh, instance of godliness mentioned in 1 Timothy comes in uh, chapter 6 and verse 3 to 6. It's kind of a little lengthy passage. Let's look at it. He says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, that's, godliness is mentioned three times in there. This is really Paul's focal passage on godliness. I told you what my favorite one was back in chapter 4. Exercise toward godliness. Discipline ourselves toward godliness. This is really Paul's focus on godliness. Paul's encouraging Timothy here to avoid anyone who doesn't teach Jesus' lessons on godliness. You caught that, right? He says, avoid them. Jesus, after all, is our prime example of true godliness, isn't it? Isn't he? We saw that way back uh, chapter 3 when Paul was talking about the mystery of godliness is that God was revealed in the flesh. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our example of godliness. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. True biblical teaching, then, that meshes perfectly with how Jesus lived. And that definition is godliness, because Jesus was God. So anything else, any other teaching other than the way Jesus lived, is rooted in pride, Paul says. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud. Anything that doesn't follow Jesus' teaching is rooted in pride. Simple as that. When someone's teaching true biblical godliness, it's going to show in their personal lives as well. If they are really teaching true biblical godliness, it will show in a godly life. If it doesn't show in a godly life, then maybe they're not teaching their proper godliness. Now, I'll take a sidestep with Paul in uh, verse 5, where he talks about perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Paul's looking at the false teacher who's described as having a corrupt mind. Corrupt mind, destitute of the truth. Their reasoning is faulty. And so the conclusion, because their reasoning is faulty, the conclusions that they come to are faulty as well. The gospel is truth, you see. And to deny it is to believe a lie. 
And some of the false teachers in Timothy's day taught that living godly would lead to material wealth. That was one of the teachings that was going on in on Timothy's day. Now that sounds an awful lot like what I can get on some of the early morning TV preachers too, isn't it? Folks haven't changed very much, have they? What was going on in the first century in Timothy's day in Ephesus is the same thing that goes on when I flip the early morning television on today. The teaching's the same. If godly living, let me ask you a question here. If godly living is the key to wealth, then why didn't Jesus even have a pillow to lay his head on? That's what Jesus said about himself. He said the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Why did Paul have so many difficulties in his travels? If godliness is the key to material wealth, you see, some believers will be blessed financially, but it's not a magic formula. And if anybody thinks that it is, then they're greedy, Paul says. Which, he's, that brings us to verses 6 to 8, see? The subject doesn't really change. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. One of the aspects that's related to godliness, apparently, is contentment. You can usually tell someone who's genuinely godly by how content they are with their lot in life. Whatever may be happening, if they're content, that you can mark it down, that's a godly person. If someone's always griping about how bad it is, how bad they have it, or is irritated when something goes wrong, then you can mark it down. That person is not a godly person. I'll bring out the example of Joseph, right? Uh, back in Genesis, tail end of the book of Genesis. Joseph, 17 years old, uh, gets sold by his own brothers into slavery, right? That's not a very good thing. Do we see Joseph complain? No. He ends up being purchased as a slave by Potiphar. Uh, gets wrongfully accused of seduction by Potiphar's, Mrs. Potiphar. We never get Potiphar's wife's name. Just we'll call her Mrs. Potiphar. Gets thrown in jail. Uh, that's probably not a good thing. Do we see Joseph complain? No. All of those things that happened, I'm not going to go through all of Joseph's life. All of those things that happened to Joseph ended up working out for his own good. Because he was content. He was showing a godly attitude. God blessed him through bad circumstances. You may have bad circumstances. You may be a godly person. How is your reaction to those bad circumstances that seem to happen? If you react in a godly manner, you're on the right track. Now, finally, last mention comes in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. 
where Paul gives specific instructions to Timothy himself. and says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Paul's giving his final instructions to Timothy. And he tells him to follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And again, this is in direct contrast to the attitude and the mindset of the false teachers. You can read the verses prior to see what that all looks like. There were a lot of false teachers in Ephesus in Timothy's day. True ministry, true biblical ministry, godly ministry will not be marked by greed. but rather be focused on eternal life and awareness of one's accountability before God. When you understand that you are accountable to only one person in the universe, and that is God himself, that's a different perspective. Notice that Paul calls Timothy a man of God. But thou, O man of God... That tells me that these are at least some of the marks that distinguish a true man of God. And that's Old Testament style of language too, isn't it? I mean, when you read through the Old Testament, you see the prophets are referred to as a man of God. Oh, the man of God. Where's the man of God live? And everybody knew who the man of God was. Uh, well, it was Elijah in the, this particular case, or whomever it might have been. Everybody knew who the man of God was. Somebody looks at your life, they ought to recognize you as a man or woman of God. Where's the man of God around here? Well, if that's them, it must be them. You must be talking about them. We ought to have some distinguishing marks. There ought to be something different. Again, it comes from discipline. This sort of person, this sort of person who is a man of God, will be the sort of person who's going to fight a good fight of faith, cling to eternal life. That's what verse 12 says, right? Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Sounds tenacious, doesn't it? Whereunto thou art also called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. You're not hiding. Tenaciously clinging to the things of eternal life tenaciously clinging to the gospel. Not just flub-dubbing through life. Sounds discipline. Sounds exercising. Sounds like it takes effort. Now, if you and I are really conscious, and this is just going to be my closing thought and we'll be done, if you and I are really conscientious about pursuing a godly life and living the way that Jesus, our Lord, would in this world, then we will be a stronger Christian. And we will be able to fight the fight of faith. If you exercise, you can't help but get stronger, right? Right? You can't help it. It happens. When you, 
the muscles you exercise will become stronger no matter what. If you're exercising toward godliness, you will become more godly. But if you're not, you will not become any more godly. Simple fact. I'm not teaching you anything that's really profound here, am I? You will know all this already. It's common sense. I was just struck as I was going through 1 Timothy how many times he mentioned godliness, godliness, godliness in one little book. If we want to live the way Jesus would in this world, and we want to be a stronger Christian, we want to be able to fight the good fight of faith, we're going to have to work at it. And I don't think we got a lot of time. And again, I can't help but think that the reason that so many Christians can't stand their ground against the world today is that because we've grown weak and we've grown limp-wristed. Right? Paul's talking about fighting a good fight of faith. He had a tough world. They were killing Christians. Nero ended up tying people to poles, dipping them in tar, and using them as lamps to light his races. That's tough. It takes a tough person to stand up to that and still be faithful. You can't fight if you're a bunch of spineless jellyfish. To fight demands strength, doesn't it? And to be strong demands exercise, doesn't it? And exercise demands discipline, doesn't it? And discipline is going to take effort. If we step out and we actually try to work out in our Christian walk, we're going to find that we get stronger and we're going to feel better in our faith. That's one of the other things that happens with exercise too, right? You start to feel better. You don't realize how bad you felt until you started to feel good. You're going to feel better in your faith. You're going to be stronger in your faith. And you're going to be content. And you're going to be less worried about the world is doing around you as your focus becomes on the eternal. It doesn't really matter to me how chaotic this world is. It doesn't really matter what these people are doing running around. I missed the drag racing keen last Sunday. Uh, I don't care about the drag racing keen because my focus is on the eternal. You see... The rest of this stuff that's going on around me doesn't affect me. It shouldn't make me angry because my focus is going to be on the eternal. And that sounds a whole lot better than cowering in fear and worrying about stuff, doesn't it? Do you want to work on this with me? It's going to take work. I talked about how you and I can sit down and we can talk about how we'd like to exercise and we'd like to get stronger, right? But if I'm the only one doing it, when I, you're not going to get stronger. Do you want to be more godly? Do you want to work on it with me? Then let's work on it. You mind if I close in a word of prayer? Lord, I do thank you for the prescriptions that are in your word. Instructions on how we can become more like you. You were manifest in the flesh. You didn't just send us a book. 
You didn't just send us an angel to tell us how we ought to live. You actually manifest in the flesh to show us how we ought to live. Help us to walk in that example. Guide us through this week and help us to share this gospel. The only means by which men can be saved. I do believe time is short. And even so, come back, Lord Jesus. We're looking forward to it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.